An Air Canada flight is landing in San Francisco when they have to go around. What caused this flight to almost become the worst aviation accident in history? Welcome back to the Hard Landings Podcast, everybody. I'm Nick. I'm Miranda. And I'm Christy. Hey. April stories, best pranks. I'm expecting big things. Yes. That means you actually have to send stuff, guys. Yes. And not just David. Although there are two other people that submitted a story. Okay. There are. After yes. we recorded last week. Yes. And I appreciate that. That's still not enough to do an episode. <laughs> <laughs> I did see that, and that is exciting. Because we obviously we were recording in advance. So anyway. Prank stories for April. You can get ducks. Our next order will go out in a couple weeks. We had more of those submitted. I saw one today. Be a patron, because patrons are cool. We are also recording on the anniversary of Tenerife. You should go listen to that episode. Which will be mentioned later. Oh, good. Okay. Yep. With that in mind, what are we covering today, Nick? Today, we are covering Air Canada Flight 759. Thank you to our patron, Kevin for recommending this incident. Thank you, Kevin. Apologies to anyone whose episodes we've had to not do because we failed to look to see if there is a report. That is our bad. We try our best. Sometimes we just don't have the time to look immediately. Yeah, sometimes you message us and we're like, yeah, sure, we'll cover that. Don't look into it. And then there's no report. So Yeah, we get to the point where we're going to cover it and we're like, uh, fun fact, this there's is... absolutely no report, or we can't get to the report, or the report isn't a language we can't get translated, so. This has happened twice recently, so sorry. Anyways, this incident occurred on July 17th of 2017, or 7 Wow. Didn't we just cover something else that was in 2017? Yeah, yes. last episode. <laughs> yep. Huh. We are on a little streak of recent stuff. That streak does not end next week, by the way. No. Next week is also recent. This also sticks with another theme from last week. It sticks with a couple of themes from last week. Yes, but primarily nobody dies. That's good. Give that away now. This was an Airbus A320 with the tail number Charlie-Foxtrot Kilo, Charlie Kilo. This was a flight from Toronto to San Francisco. The captain is 56 years old. No names. Obviously. He's Canadian. According to the report, had about 20,000 hours total flying time. That's a lot. That's a lot. That's the only estimation they give had about 7,063 hours on the A320. That's not bad. That's a lot of hours <laughs> for a single airplane type. The first officer was 42 years old, had about 10,000 hours of flying time. Also still a lot, and had about 2,343 hours of flying time on the A320. Also relatively experienced. Like, not bad. When they say the A320, do hours from other baby buses count? That's a good question. Probably. Okay. So, baby bus. Yes. But which, they say on on the A3, yeah. on the A320. Which, for those of you who are not familiar with the lingo, the A320 family is the A3, 18, 19, 20, and 21. Yep. And they get called the baby buses. They are similar in size to the 737. Yep. They are the direct competitor of the 737. The flight was to have five crew and 135 passengers. The first officer reported for duty for this flight at about 7.10 p.m. local time. This is an evening flight. He reported to Toronto to prepare for the flight. The captain reported for duty at Toronto at about 7.40 p.m. local time, so about a half an hour later. The two flight crew discussed a delay in the departure due to the aircraft arriving late from the preceding flight due to weather in Toronto. In the meantime, they briefed and prepared for the planned flight to San Francisco. 
The flight finally pushed back from the gate at Toronto at 9.25 p.m. local time, which was about 30 minutes behind schedule. The captain was to be the pilot flying for the flight, while the first officer was to be the pilot monitoring. The flight took off at 9.58 p.m. from Toronto. The autopilot was engaged shortly after takeoff. The climb out, cruise, and descent were carried out normally. Midway through the flight, they had to avoid some thunderstorms. Nothing of consequence, really. It just added a little bit of time. Dunder. Dunder. At 11.21 p.m. Pacific time, just before they began their descent into San Francisco, the first officer retrieved the ATIS information, or Automated Terminal Information System, via the ACARS, or Aircraft Communication and Reporting System. So this is actually the electronic system on the aircraft, rather than listening to it over the radio, which allowed them to print out the information on the ATIS. At that time, it was noted as Information Quebec. If you need a refresher on that, there are plenty of episodes where we talk about it. Hopefully you know how this works by now. Please go back to the several episodes we talked about microbursts. Yep, that is a good one to highlight how ATIS works. The ATIS Information Quebec included a note that the airport traffic was currently landing and departing on runway 28 right at San Francisco, and that runway 28 left was closed for maintenance. The approach to 28 right that was in use was called the Quiet Bridge Visual Approach, which was an instrument-aided visual approach over the bay to avoid too much noise over the populated areas around San Francisco. Makes sense. I will talk more about that later. Yes. The weather that evening was clear. The visual approach was normal and easy for San Francisco. The crew briefed on the arrival, approach, and landing procedure and expectations just prior to the descent. Talk more about that later, too. 11.24 p.m., they began their descent from flight level 360 down to 8,000 feet, which was the crossing altitude for the first waypoint for the approach for the charts. 11.30 p.m. and 42 seconds, the flight reported to the approach controller as being on the DYAMD-3, Diamond, I assume, 3, RNAV STAR, or Standard Terminal Arrival Route. This is an arrival, not an approach. There is a difference. This is how you get into the terminal area. An approach is how you actually get to the runway. And that they were descending through 27,000 feet at the time. The approach controller gave the flight instructions to join the expected visual approach to runway 28 right. 11.46 p.m. and 8 seconds, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to fly direct to TRDOW to join the visual approach to 28 right, and the flight crew acknowledged. So what this really means is normally they have all these series of waypoints they're supposed to do along the arrival route, and then enter the approach. He's basically telling them to skip a couple of waypoints and go direct to the beginning of the approach. That's what this means. Which he is well within his rights to do. Yes, of yeah. course. Well, he's ATC. Yep. Do whatever the heck he wants. Yeah. For, for traffic <laughs> sequencing... Per altitudes, per speeds, everything, as long as the airplane's in the right place, the right time, he can tell them wherever they want to be, wherever he wants them to be. So that's what he told them to be at the beginning of the approach, basically. 11.46 p.m. and 19 seconds, the air traffic controller asked if the flight had the airport or the bay bridges in sight, and the flight crew responded that they had the bridges in sight. There are several bridges along this approach. Mm -hmm. If you've ever been over the bay before, I'm sure you've seen these. The air traffic controller then cleared the flight for the visual approach. So while they've been talking about the visual approach the whole time, and the air traffic controller is helping them get to the visual approach, you still have to have clearance to actually be on that approach because right. you have to be sequenced at that point into a certain place in line. Yeah, because you're not the only one doing the approach. Right. Much like you need a clearance to land and take off, you also need a clearance for an approach. 11.50 p.m. and 48 seconds, the approach controller instructed the flight to contact the tower controller for San Francisco, and they did so. Four seconds after the initial contact with the tower was made, the tower controller cleared the flight to land on runway 28 right, and the flight crew acknowledged. The visual approach required that the autopilot be disconnected at or before a certain point, known as Foxtrot 101 Delta. 
the last waypoint along their approach. So this is the last waypoint before the runway, which is along the final approach and for the remainder of the approach and landing to be hand flown per the charts and Air Canada's procedures. At 11.53 p.m. and 28 seconds, the autopilot was disconnected while the aircraft was still at 1,300 feet. 11.54 p.m. and 2 seconds, so just a handful of seconds later, the flight director was disengaged when the flight was at about 1,200 feet. And then at 11.54 p.m. and 28 seconds, the aircraft passed Foxtrot 101 Delta at an altitude of 1,100 feet. So they did everything as they were supposed to do. At which time, the captain made the required 14-degree right turn to line up with the center line of the runway. Something was slightly off. So this right turn is very normal. If you know anything about San Francisco, those two runways are very close together. They very, very, very often do parallel approaches on these runways. Uh, I'll talk more about this later, too. So they wait all the way until basically that last waypoint, the last second, to actually have the airplanes... Side by side. Dead on center. Because the runways, I believe, are only 750 feet apart. Right. Which is... In most situations in the United States, too close, actually. San Francisco, they can get away with it because of the procedures they use. So, in this case, they use that last waypoint to actually have done their turns. Basically, it's like a triangle when you look at the the two approaches for this runway. And they come in at angles pointing toward each other, and at the last second on that last waypoint, they straighten out for their perspective runway. The first officer was now busy with monitoring, referencing, and adjusting tasks at this time, while the captain was busy with the operation of the aircraft. Moments later, the captain asked the first officer to find out if the runway was in fact clear of other traffic, as he thought he noticed some lights on the runway that looked like another aircraft. 11.55 p.m. and 45 seconds, as the aircraft was about 300 feet above the ground, well, that's above above sea level. level. Above the, whatever. It's It's the same same at this point, because they're over water. The first officer made a transmission to the tower. Quote, just want to confirm, this is... Air Canada 759, we see some lights on the runway there, across the runway. Can you confirm we're cleared to land? One second later, the air traffic controller responded, AC 759, confirm, cleared to land, 28 right. There's no one on 28 right but you. That should be a warning sign. I see lights on the runway. There are no lights on the runway. We'll talk about this, though. (laughs) It's like, are you sure? We'll talk about this later, though, because there is something strange here. The airplane was about 200 feet now, and just 2,300 feet laterally from the seawall. The same one struck by the Asiana 777 that we've talked about, by the way. The one that did the cartwheel? Yes. 11.55 p.m. and 58 seconds, the flight acknowledged the clearance, stating, quote, okay, end quote. Great. But was now just 500 feet laterally from the seawall. One second later, a voice came over the tower frequency, asking, quote, Where is that guy going? End quote. Oh, God. (sighs) As the airplane was at just 150 feet in altitude and now less than 500 feet from the seawall, at 11.56 p.m. in three seconds, the flight passed over UAL or United Airlines Flight 1, a Boeing 7879 with the tail number November 29961, which was holding short of runway 28 right on taxiway Charlie, waiting for takeoff. The mysterious voice heard on the tower frequency was that of the captain of UAL-1, who was inquiring about the Air Canada flight as it seemed to be heading straight for them on the taxiway. Not for the runway. (laughs) AC-759 passed over United Airlines 1, simultaneous to the captain of United Airlines 1 making another transmission stating, quote, he's on the taxiway, end quote. Also simultaneous to that was the captain of Philippine Airlines Flight 115 turning on the landing light of their A340, with the tail number, Romeo Papa-Charlie-3441, which was sitting right behind UAL-1 
on Taxiway Charlie, facing directly at Air Canada 759. This illuminated part of the taxiway and part of United Airlines Flight 1 to make them visible, but this was too late for AC-759 to see it. Talk more about that later. Well, they don't know if it was too late. They to don't be know. Fair, but... Nobody died, so you can probably assume they didn't hit another airplane. Yes, that is fair. <laughs> you can assume <laughs> they did not make a landing on the airplanes on the taxiway. But there's going to be an enormous amount of things to unpack when all of this is done. 11.56 p.m. in five seconds. Just two seconds after passing over United Airlines Flight 1, the throttles were advanced on Air Canada 759, and the pitch was increased upward. Go around. The first officer had just called for a go-around at the same time that the captain was advancing the throttles and pulling back to initiate a go-around. Two seconds later, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to go around. Yes, thank you. <laughs> Which they already were, obviously. They were That's like, oh. already happening. No, uh, too, already had you. Yep. The crew acknowledged the instruction two seconds later as they were flying over Philippine Airlines Flight 115, United Airlines Flight 863, which was a 7879 with the tail number November 13954, and United Airlines Flight 1118, which was a Boeing 737-900ER with the tail number November 62895, which were all sitting on taxiway, Charlie, waiting for takeoff. Air Canada Flight 759, now safely climbing away, they prepped for the missed approach procedure. 11.56 p.m. and 12 seconds, the air traffic controller informed the flight, quote, it looks like you were lined up for Charlie, end quote. Then instructed the flight to fly a heading of 280 degrees and climb to 3,000 feet. The flight crew acknowledged the heading and altitude instructions. 11.56 p.m. and 23 seconds, the crew raised the landing gear and five seconds later engaged the autopilot. 11.56 p.m. and 44 seconds, as well as 11.56 p.m. and 55 seconds, the air traffic controller instructed the flight to contact the NorCal approach once again, and the crew acknowledged at 11.57 p.m. Dead on. So they were asked twice to switch frequencies. The second approach was uneventful this time. Air Canada Flight 759 landed on runway 28 right at 12.11 a.m. There were no injuries or fatalities, and no damage was done to any aircraft or facilities. Something we don't have very often, if ever. But... But... There was a lot of chaos here and a lot to unpack. Can you imagine being in that line of planes and going, ah! <laughs> Yeah. I'll get into it. So now let's m make you mad. Oh, good. Because, you know. I didn't get super mad, but... Uh. I mean... Someone screwed up somewhere. There's multiple screw-ups. It's so. not just one. The investigation was performed by the... NTSB! Which, in case you're new here, stands for National Transportation Safety Board, who were informed of the incident on July 9th, two days later. Only one day after they actually landed. Remember, they landed on July know, 8th, 11 minutes into July 8th. It's still not good! <laughs> no. And it's problematic for a slew of reasons. Yes. The incident occurred two days prior, and the plane flew in between the accident, incident, and notification, meaning that the CVR was overwritten. <gasps> no. So the investigators will never have the recording of what exactly transpired in the cockpit. Bruh. Rookie mistakes. Yes. Air Canada procedures say that pilots are to report any accident, incident, emergency, or other safety-related event to flight dispatch as soon as possible. But the procedure doesn't exactly say what as soon as possible could mean, should I, mean. What as soon as soon as possible would be you get on the ground and then you get on the phone. You would think. That would be as soon as possible. The captain said he didn't report it immediately because it was very late. True. And he was very tired. 
Also true. Fair enough. Remember that. He and the first officer met the following morning at 11 a.m. to discuss the incident and reported it at 4.08 p.m. while they were preparing to fly back to Toronto at 4.49 p.m. On a different plane, by the way. The incident aircraft flew to Montreal, for all who care. The dispatcher who received the report said the captain reported lining up for the wrong runway and performing a go-around. The dispatcher described the report as innocuous, and this lines up with what the crew thought, because they had no idea that there were airplanes they could have collided with on the taxiway. They didn't know. They didn't know there were planes. They didn't know it was a taxiway. Were the were there not any taxiway lights? There were. Obscured by the planes. Mm-hmm. What about the runway, though? So the runway well, has its own lights. We'll get that there. That are a different well, color than the taxiway. What? We're getting there. Pata, pata, pata. Like, we had this entire conversation last week. Yep. There's a lot <laughs> there's, of similarities. There, yeah, there's, there's, uh, yes. This, since we didn't mention it earlier, had the potential to be the worst aviation accident in history. There were over a thousand people involved, technically. Between all five airplanes. Yeah. Would they have hit all five? Maybe. Would they have, da- would they have hurt all people on all five? Probably not. It's still not great. No, it's distinctly terrible. So, thank God nothing happened. Really. Sort of. Let's move on. Air Canada as a whole had no idea of the severity of the incident until the Transportation Safety Board of Canada told them in an email on July 9th in the late evening, like 10 p.m. Yep. In their emails, which are bilingual. Yes. Yes. They have to be. Because they speak two languages. Mm Mm-hmm. They're a bilingual country. The incident crew were told on July 10th that they had overflown aircraft on a taxiway and the crew members were reportedly shocked. They were flabbergasted. They had no idea that that had happened. If that were me, I would have just like handed them my badge, handed them my license, like, nope, I'm out. I'm so sorry. I mean, to some extent, I can kind of understand why they didn't know. But at the same time, yeah, horrifying. I'm horrifying to find out. We're going to watch the video. Yes. We will. When you see the video, it'll be on the website. It shows pretty distinctly why they didn't see the other planes. Now, oh. I'm sure we'll get into more about yes. that in a There's second. There's a lot of detail as why. I've seen the video before. That's why she's not, like, shocked by anything we've been yeah, talking about. because I've seen the video. I don't know exactly what took place. I just have seen the video because Nick has showed us, like, a billion years ago. Throughout the analysis, the NTSB made sure to mention repeatedly how much the CVR would have aided in their investigation. And I'm not going to be as persistent about it, but I know I'm going to have to leave it in at least a bit. You mad, bro? I mean, they're real mad about it. It Obviously. To be fair. And I get it. That's like the way for them to understand why the crew made that decision. Yes. That's the only way for them to know. Mm-hmm. And when you don't have that information, it's like, I mean, they I guess they could tell you after the fact, but they're not going to remember exactly what happened. And so pretty much the rest of the analysis is based off of their statements. Yeah. There was a lot of the story that was actually all statements. I did not put most of those in there because also they would have been jumping ahead. Let's run through the incident sequence or as much of it as we can with the crew testimonies and the flight data recorder, which was not overwritten because it can record like 25 hours of flight time. Runway 28 left was scheduled to close at 11 p.m., and the incident flight was given a no-tam with that information during their pre-flight briefing. But they didn't discuss it too much because they were supposed to land before then, which they, doesn't make sense to me. But because are they, they just, actually I know. landing on 28 right, though, right? Not so left? normally 28 left is in use. Right. And they didn't care that 28 left was supposed to close because they thought they were landing before the closure when they were technically scheduled to land at 1103. 
when I mean, they probably could have squeezed it. And it was supposed to close at 11. So Yeah, but they landed on Tui right. But then the flight was delayed by 49 minutes. Oh, now I get it. Because the plane arrived late into Toronto. Right. So they never talked about it again. Were they planning on landing on 2-8 left? Yes. Oh, apparently I didn't catch that. Originally, yes. Oh, okay. During the approach briefing, crews are to perform a threat briefing, and neither of the pilots briefed on the closure of runway 2-8 left. That's not great. No. At 11.21, the crew requested the ATIS and received ATIS Quebec, which did contain the information regarding the closure of 2-8 left, but neither crew remembered seeing that. I'll get into that later. It's in the no-tims. They they have it on the ATIS for a reason. Mm -hmm. (laughs) We'll we'll get more into that later. Yeah. Now we're going to talk briefly about the flight that happened before the incident flight. Yes. This was a Delta flight, and it was a 737. Both crew members from said Delta flight actually wrote reports to their management as well as to the NTSB saying, hey... I can actually attest to why this might have happened, because they agreed with the Air Canada pilots. They said they would have done the exact same thing. Who? The The flight before them. Oh. These two Delta pilots in the 737. They said they would have done the same thing. As they were approaching runway 28 right, they actually thought that Charlie was the runway. They only corrected themselves... Because they had ILS information inputted. We'll talk about that in a minute. They were flying a visual approach as well. Same approach. The same approach to 28 right. Just four minutes before AC759. And they actually thought they were lined up incorrectly. They thought they were lined up on 28 left when they were approaching the runway. They ended up figuring out kind of at the last second that they were on 28 right. Because they were using the ILS. Why didn't Air Canada... Use the ILS. Because it, it was a visual approach. You're correct. Yes, but it but. was on the approach chart to be tuned. Yeah, but I mean, to be fair. Let me, let me. It's a tool that is supposed to be used on the approach in this particular instance. You might recall that I said this is a... Instrument-aided visual yes, approach. Yes, instrument-aided visual oh, approach. no, I don't remember that. <laughs> so this is, a visual, this is a visual approach, but because this is a... This has, has weird to be, maneuvers at the last minute. Yes, it has to be very accurate. And because there's very little room for error, they have to have some form of instrument aid regardless, even though they're hand flying. Okay. So the aid is said that the quiet bridge visual approach was in use and arriving aircraft would land on 2-8 right. So the crew whips out the Air Canada FMS bridge visual approach procedure for approach to runway 2-8 right. We have both pages of the visual approach chart on our website for your reference. This approach keeps the aircraft a titch northeast of the normal approach path because runways 28 left and 28 right are only 750 feet apart. So this approach is to keep the approaching 28 right aircraft offset until passing over the San Mateo Bridge, hence it's called the bridge approach, which is especially helpful for parallel landings, even though this was not the case here. The first page of the approach chart shows the map, waypoints, altitudes, etc. And the second page has written instructions of what the approach is, as well as how either the Embraer or the baby buses can program this into their system. During the approach, the first officer said he missed the step to manually tune the ILS frequency. Why? A couple of reasons. One, this is one of the only approaches where this is ever necessary. In fact, for Air Canada, the FMS bridge visual approach was the only approach in the whole A320 database that required the manual tuning of the ILS frequency. Oh, well, okay. Yep. Two, this approach instruction is not given very well. 
For important steps, it is conventional, or normal, that they be broken out of the text using a bullet point. It draws the eye. You don't get lost in reading a paragraph. Not here. The four-word instruction, quote, tune the ILS to a right, end quote, was buried in a paragraph, contributing to the first officer missing that step. Yeah, that's not great. No. Also, I can understand now, so for those of you who may be like me and are kind of a little lost as to why, why would you think that this taxiway would be a runway Mm -hmm. when the other runway is right next to you? Because... It's closed. And if you think you're going in on 28 left and you're going to the right of it and there's a bunch of lines there of lights, I'm just like. <laughs> that I, is one piece of the puzzle. Yes. 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 But now I'm starting to understand that they thought that that was actually 28 right because. Because of the, I'm, because I'm it's get, to the right, right. Yes, but there's still a few more things that have to fall into place for them to continue to think that. And yes, they so, do. Going back to the ILS, I'm just wrapping it for yes. everyone who's having a hard visual time figuring out why the hell they would do that. I'll, I'll do that wrapping later too. Yeah. Yes. I'm just now starting to like figure <laughs> out like, oh right, so the the left one's closed, so they think the right one's the left one. They think the taxiway's the right one. Okay, got it. Because they didn't yes. remember that two eight left was closed. closed. Got it. So we'll get there. So the ILS, not programmed. We've discussed why. This error should have been caught by the captain, but for whatever reason, wasn't. And we won't know for sure why, whether it was workload, distraction, etc., because we don't have the CVR. Well, I have a pretty good guess. They're hand-flying aircraft at this point, right? Uh, no, not at this point. At this point, it's still on autopilot when they're supposed to be tuning the ILS. All the way up until just before... So Foxtrot 101 Delta. That's where they turn off the autopilot. Okay. I'm getting there. So, speaking of autopilot. Air Canada procedures allow pilots to use either managed or open descent autopilot mode. Open descent is where controlling the pitch is used to maintain the target speed while the auto thrust maintains idle thrust. Conversely, managed descent considers the speed and altitude constraints entered by the crew. So, think of it as like... Easy and hard autopilot. The captain reported he initially flew with open descent, but then used managed descent. But this differs from what the first officer said. And the FDR doesn't record that information. So there's no way to know. Nope. So we don't know exactly how much of a workload the crew had. The first officer said it was open descent because he was concerned about that choice as it gave them more work to do. But he also didn't say anything about it. So crew resource management tick one. After the flight reached the waypoint Foxtrot 101 Delta, autopilot was disconnected, as it should have been, and the first officer began entering the missed approach altitude and heading into the system, which was the correct time to do that, given that he thought it was open descent autopilot. Like he, he, That was correct. So he wasn't watching as the captain aligned for landing on taxiway Charlie. Right. He wasn't being, quote unquote, monitored. Nope. And then the captain asked the first officer to set the runway heading, which further extended the first officer's head's downtime after passing the waypoint. Quote, If the first officer had been monitoring the approach at this point, he might have realized, among other things, that the ILS frequency and identifier and the runway 28 right extended centerline were not depicted on his primary flight display. End quote. The NTSB calls out the following crew actions slash inactions as a breakdown in crew resource management. There's a thing. Quote, the flight crew's ineffective review of NOTAMs in the flight release. The flight crew's failure to identify the runway 28 left closure information within the ATIS information. The flight crew's failure to conduct a complete approach briefing. 
The first officer's failure to manually tune the ILS frequency and the captain's failure to verify the tuning of the ILS frequency. The first officer's failure to express concern about the perceived use of the open descent mode and the captain's request at the final waypoint for the first officer to set the runway heading, which took the first officer by surprise and prolonged his heads down time while the airplane was aligned with the taxiway, end quote. After they passed the F-101D at 1,100 feet, which, by the way, was supposed to be at 1,200 feet or higher, Mm-hmm. The That's captain the noticed lights on what he thought was the runway, so he asked the first officer to ask ATC to verify the runway was clear. It's at this point that I get Tenerife flashbacks. Is the runway clear? Right. The first officer asked air traffic control, We see some lights on the runway there, across the runway. Can you confirm we're cleared to land? Mind you, their altitude at this point was 300 feet. The controller scanned the runway, then the radar, then the runway again, and confirmed that they were cleared to land, and there were no aircraft on the runway. Question. Yes. Now, I realize, one, we'll probably get into this in a second. Oh, well, I'm mm-hmm. going to ask the question anyway. Mm-hmm. Two, I realize this may be a dumb question, but... Not necessarily. I think I know where you're going. Yeah. Wouldn't ATC realize that they were lined up for Charlie and not for the runway? Do you have I'm this? literally about to get into this. <laughs> okay, I was going to say, <laughs> let's like, talk about why. I was like, let's, I feel like you... Let's talk about why. Ground radar. There's actually a really good reason... That he thought they were in the right I feel place. like you have a better reason than I do, because my reason's pretty innocuous. Go ahead. So, the flight is now at 200 feet. They continued and flew over UA Flight 1 at an altitude of 100 feet and initiated a go-around at 89 feet. Eh. They flew over Philippine Airlines Flight 115 at 60 feet. How did they not hit the plane? Before finally climbing, leaving a clearance of 13 and a half feet between the fuselage and the vertical stabilizer of the Philippine Airlines flight. I don't like that. Way too close for comfort. There's a picture. Nobody knew it I at the really time. Don't like that. No one likes it. You can see the lit up stabilizer right underneath AC seven five nine directly I, underneath it. I really don't like that. I really don't. It's really cutting it close. It's so close. Anyway, we are now going to watch the security footage from Terminal Two, which shows everything transpire in the upper left of the video. I know that wasn't a break for you guys, but that was a quick break for us. So. You will notice in the video, which the air traffic control recording is laid over, that the tower does call for the crew to go around, but the crew had already initiated the on their own four seconds before the tower called for it, as we mentioned. Air traffic control reported that a tenth of a mile out, the airplane looked extremely strange regarding its relative location, and he was further confused when the United Flight 1 pilot asked, where is that guy going? And the controller was probably trying to recognize what was happening. Never before had he seen a plane line up with taxiway Charlie... And the distance and angle of the tower would have made it difficult to see that the plane was lined up with taxiway Charlie 500 feet to the right of runway 28 right, especially with the added lights from the construction on runway 28 left and the airport vehicle movements. So just the angle of the tower. It's hard to tell. Well, what about the radar? That I have an explanation for. Go for it, because I don't. Typically, because this approach is made coming from the right and then lining up on final... He's used to seeing the airplane slightly to the right of the center line of the runway. On the radar, it depicts the airplane as being a little further to the right at all times, all the way till touchdown of what it's actually supposed to be. Because the distance between the two runways is so close, it's the only way it can keep the airplanes from being too confused. So the radar is actually showing him where he thinks the airplane normally should be, actually. So it's not that dissimilar. He's not seeing a picture on the radar that's that far off of what he would normally see. Let's dive a little more into air traffic control. Yeah. 
The midnight shift had two controllers between the hours of 10.30 p.m. and 6.30 a.m. The two of them determined from the traffic complexity and volume that they could reduce down to one person, which was allowed, and trade off between the two of them while the other was on a recuperative break. So when one was on, the other was breaking and then switching back and forth. All control positions and frequencies were combined and operated from the local control position starting at 11.49 p.m., seven minutes before the incident. The controller said he wasn't overwhelmed, and nothing really says he was, and his confusion regarding the event was most likely due to the situation and not his workload. But the pilots who were sitting on the taxiway said they really needed more than one controller, and the single controller was doing way too much. Yes. There was, wait, there was only one controller? Yes. Because they were switching back and forth. So he was the only one doing everything. Everything. Ground, air, everything. Why? And, there, and this, San Francisco isn't a quiet airport in the middle of the night. No! It's actually so very busy. So why is there only one controller? I mean, there's two of them, but they together made the decision that they could handle it individually. And everything, all of the evidence says that his workload wasn't too much. The only things that say his workload was too much were these pilots in the other planes who were like, hey, we almost got hit. You need more than one controller. Yeah. And then this other little sticking point. By the way, the Delta flight, actually, they called 30 to 40 minutes after they had arrived. They called the FAA and said, you need more controllers. So specifically, combining the local and non-local positions led to a congestion on the tower frequency. And the first officer of Flight 759 said he was waiting to confirm the runway was clear because the tower frequency was busy. Based on everyone's interviews, it seems that the first officer had to wait 38 seconds to make the transmission. So the captain asked, can you ask the tower if the runway's clear? 38 seconds later was when he was able to ask. That's a long time when it's down to mere seconds yeah. from landing. Literally, it's like good that they figured it out, I guess, because... They had 13 any, feet to spare. Yeah, any closer, they would have hit the other plane. Would they have injured anybody? Someone might have gotten some whiplash, mm. but because they would have hit the tail and the stabilizer, but that There's, that plane would have been done. AC-759 would have gone down, probably. Yeah. There's no and way there was a airborne. line of planes behind. Yeah, there's no way it would have stayed airborne. Well, I mean the people on the other airplane. Yes, the other airplane. Not that airplane. The Philippines the would have been the fine. the other airplane. Yeah, the Philippine airline probably would have been okay. 759 probably would have hit the ground and maybe another airplane, so... Yeah, that's real great. lucky. Let's revisit the crew for a second. This crew was really well experienced and they were considered great pilots among their peers. What might have led to such an obvious breakdown of everything? Why did they align with Taxiway Charlie in the first place? We know that if they had used the ILS, they would have lined up properly, but planes don't use ILS all the time. So what happened? Because neither crew remembered or reviewed that 28 left was closed, they expected to see two parallel runways and would need to land on the right-hand one. Okay, but why didn't they see that there were indeed two runways and one was closed? Why didn't they recognize that runway 28 left was a runway? The lights for runway 28 left were off for the construction and maintenance, but shouldn't they have the big flashing X? That's what I was going to say. I'm like, shouldn't there be an X at the end of the runway? Yes. It was there, but it was pointed and designed to deter landing and taking off from that runway, meaning that the incident airplane might not have seen it. The Delta flight said that they did not see it. Right. Because airplanes approaching that runway approach from the left. But my other problem is, is the runway lights are different color from the taxiway lights. Yes. Now, I realize there are planes on the taxiway, and they're slightly... They can't really see the taxiway lights. Yes. 
But we will get there. Okay, because there should be a clear difference, even if there's people on that runway. Yes. Give me two paragraphs. Okay. I think I can do that. Furthermore, the construction lights that were on runway 28 left made it look like a ramp. Oh, that's not great. Nope. Therefore, they thought Taxiway Charlie was runway 28 right. Investigators considered ways that the runway closure may have escaped their knowledge. One good point was that the runway closure information was on page 8 of their 27-page flight release package, which is not optimal for information recall, as you are more likely to remember the first and last items in a series rather than the middle. Yes. True. But it was in the ATIS too, as Miranda has aptly pointed out. Well, the ATIS since it was retrieved from ACARS, was 14 continuous lines of all caps text with the same font, meaning it was yes. buried. Yeah, this is normal. This is normal. Something as simple as putting line breaks would help make important information more conspicuous. Well, and they were reading it instead of listening to it. Mm-hmm. Right. So what would make Taxiway Charlie look like a runway? For one, the planes. Yep. The wingtip navigation lights may have resembled runway edge lighting. Yep. I could see that. And the flashing red beacon lights are consistent with runway approach lighting. Well. So that sucks. All of these factors together contributed to the crew's expectation bias, which is the manipulation of perceived elements to values consistent with a person's expectations. It's similar to confirmation bias, but is a little more passive in that expectation bias just works with what you've got, whereas confirmation bias is looking for more information to support your theory, which you already believe to be true. Does that make sense? Yeah. Both biases can cause an incorrect belief despite contradictory evidence, and it's not anything new in aviation. It has caused mislandings before at entirely wrong airports. Yep. Maybe we'll talk about one of those some days. This crazy. This report mentioned two in the last 10 years. Yeah, I can think of both of those. Uh, there's also one that happened in Portland. Yes, long time ago. Where a plane landed at Troutdale. Yep. Successfully. I might add that every single one of these landings was successful. They just end up at the wrong airport, and then they're unable to take off again. The thing that finally broke the crew out of their bias was the flight crew of Philippine Airlines Flight 115, who turned on their landing lights, which illuminated the plane in front of them, United Flight 1, who was also transmitting to the radio at the same time, wondering what the incident flight was doing. The incident crew says they couldn't identify what exactly triggered them specifically, but their go-around time coincided with the radio call from Flight 1 and the landing lights from Flight 115. But that's not all! But wait, there's more. You might recall from last week, a little phenomenon called window of circadian low. When it's dark outside, your brain makes you feel tired. Please refer to last episode for all of the hormones and crap that goes with that. <laughs> it's literally last episode. Yep, it is. <laughs> and that's where your circadian rhythm comes from. The time of most fatigue and being most prone to lack of awareness is called the window of circadian low. And it occurs between 2 a.m. and 6 a.m. But wait, this was at 11.56 p.m., right? Sure, Pacific time. In Eastern Time, which is where their brains are programmed to, since they're from Toronto, it would be 2.56 a.m., right in the middle of the window of circadian low. Furthermore, the captain had been awake for 19 hours, and the first officer had been awake for 12 hours. We'll talk about that separately. Wait a minute, what? <laughs> that being said, they were within their duty times of 14 hours plus 3 hours for unforeseen operational circumstances. It's still not great. That has changed. And that's all I got, I think. Did I miss anything? I don't think so. No, that covers a lot of things. The one thing I will say, the other piece that's added to the lights is that the actual approach lights to 28 right were not on. Oh, I forgot that part. Oh, well, that's not helpful. Not at all. Why were they not on? Normally, they're a set of flashing lights that literally flash 
In, it's the only available runway, and you don't have the approach lights on? Correct, because it's visual con- conditions, and in theory, they don't need them. Legally, they had everything on that they I, needed to have on. I feel like I should know this. Are the approach lights just, like, planted in the bay? There's, yeah, there's, like, a long pier with them all mounted to it. Okay. Yep. They're not just stuck in the water. <laughs> yeah, and they, at all airports, at all major airports, where they have these types of approach lights... They're literally these very bright flashing lights that consecutively one after the other within a matter of a second or two will flash all the way from one end all the way to the runway to tell you this is the lead in I've to the end of the runway. I've at Denver. And the yeah. planes that were on the taxiway, their flashing beacons looked the exact same. This was another thing that Delta, the Delta flight called about when they, on that call 34 minutes after, which when I say to the FAA, I mean to the tower, but that is the FAA, yeah. FYI. They called the tower and they said, hey, you need more controllers and please turn on the approach lights. But by this time, it was already 20 minutes past the incident. So panic. Yeah. Panic, 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 panic. (laughs) This makes me uncomfortable. It makes me really uncomfortable. Yeah, it's ugly. How close they got to hitting another airplane. Please go watch the video. If, If we have not represented fully how close this was. And you can't visualize it by the picture because the picture does a pretty good job. But And also how fast this happened. Oh, so fast. If you watch the video with the audio, with the traffic control tower frequency overlaid, it tells you how fast all of this actually happened. It's, it's hard to, horrifying. Hard to comprehend. Not great. So we're going to no. take a quick break. For mental rest. <laughs> <laughs> we'll be back. It's intense. This is intense. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, now for some findings. There were a handful. I am not doing all of them, but I'm actually doing a lot of them because they are of interest. The NTSB found that the first officer did not comply with Air Canada's procedures to tune the instrument landing system, or ILS, frequency for the visual approach, and the captain did not comply with company procedures to verify the ILS frequency and identifier for the approach. So, the crew members could not take advantage of the ILS's lateral guidance capability to help ensure proper surface alignment. Pretty straightforward. They weren't following procedure. Nope. That's bad. They were supposed to have the ILS on, they didn't. They didn't. They found that the first officer's focus on tasks inside the cockpit after the airplane passed the final waypoint reduced his opportunity to effectively monitor the approach and recognize that the airplane was not aligned with the intended landing runway. Because his focus was deviated... He he was relying on the, the captain to know where they were. Well, to be fair, it is the captain's job to fly the aircraft. Yes, but it is the first officer's job to monitor that. Yeah, but the captain gave him a task. Like, you gotta yes. imagine, like... Well, and not only did he give him a task, but he also had tasks he had to do yeah. at that time, based on what they were doing. that's also part of monitoring duties. So it's yes. like, all right, sure, but this all also... Sucks. This yes. all sucks. Yep. They found that the controller responded appropriately... Once he became aware of the potential conflict, he didn't know 
And that's the hard part is like, yes, I get that air traffic control probably should have had more to say about this, but actually given all the information that he had when this was happening, he responded the way he was supposed to. He did the right thing. Somehow. Yep. They found that the errors that the flight crews made, including their false assumption that runway 28 left was open, inadequate preparation for the approach, and delayed recognition that the airplane was not lined up with runway 28 right, reflected breakdown in crew resource management. Shocker. And led to minimal safety margins as the airplane overflew taxiway Charlie. Welcome to the CRM podcast. Yes. Yeah, sometimes I feel Once that again. way. Also fatigue. Also fatigue. They were both fatigued. Fatigue. That is also a thing. Different fatigue than normal, but still fatigue. Yes. We'll get into that. They found that the flight crew members' lack of awareness about the runway 28 left closure and the crew members' previous experience seeing two parallel runways at San Francisco International Airport led to their expectation to identify two runway surfaces during the approach and resulted in the incorrect identification of Taxiway Charlie instead of runway 28 right as the intended landing runway. They found that although the notice to airmen about runway 28 left closure appeared in the flight release and the aircraft communication addressing and reporting system message that were provided to the flight crew, the presentation of the information did not effectively convey the importance of the runway closure information and promote flight crew review and retention. Pretty self-explanatory. They just didn't note the runway was closed because the information could have been presented better. Honestly, I think if they had listened to the ATIS... Yeah, if they had listened instead of reading it... Right. They because probably would have caught it. Because when you're reading, I mean, it's not to say that maybe they didn't read the entire thing. But they probably skimmed it. You kind me, of, right. You kind of skim it. You kind of are selective about the information you're looking for because you're looking for runway in use. Weather uh, information. Weather information, winds, those kinds of things. They found that the cues available to the flight crew members to indicate that the airplane was aligned with a taxiway were not sufficient to overcome their belief as a result of expectation bias that the taxiway was the intended landing runway. So they kind of agree that the pilots didn't have enough information to tell them that they weren't in the right place. They were like, no, out the window, yeah, that that could be confusing. Here we go with the fatigue thing. They found that the captain and the first officer were fatigued during the incident flight due to the number of hours that they had been continuously awake and circadian disruption, which likely contributed to the crew member's misidentification of the intended landing surface, their ongoing expectation bias, and their delayed decision to go around. I thought that there's, like, a limited amount of time... There is. ...that you can be awake, not rest time, because I know there's a rest time thing. Yes. But, like, awake time. There is, and that existed in the United States. But not in Canada? In Canada, they had different requirements, and they were legally within Canada's requirements. God. Because they were operating as part 129 and not part 121. Which is a foreign operator. Oh. Yeah. They're a foreign carrier, so they fall under their own ah. procedures. Ah. They still have to follow certain FAA procedures because they're in the United States, but this one falls under the 129, which means that they're allowed to follow Canada's what? procedures. What if that was a for 19 hours. Yes, which, by the way, this changed because Canada was like, <laughs> never mind. <laughs> You're right. <laughs> they found that the current Canadian regulations do not, in some circumstances, allow for sufficient rest for reserve pilots, which can result in the pilots flying in a fatigued state during the window of circadian low. Yeah, that's exactly what we just talked about. Yep. They found that the flight safety would be enhanced if airplane landings at primary airports within Class Bravo and Class Charlie airspace 
were equipped with a cockpit system that provided flight crews with positional awareness information that is independent of and dissimilar from the current instrument landing system backup capability of navigation to a runway. This one to me is more like a recommendation than a finding. I don't disagree with it, though, and I think it's interesting, and I think it's something that gets can definitely be implemented, and in some cases actually is. Let me to explain. So what this means is that rather than tuning in the ILS and then relying on the flight director to follow the ILS and basically give you that, and you just fly it manually, give you that information, you fly it manually, it's actually talking about a system that literally just at these airports is part of the database. You don't have to tune in anything. It's just automatically like, here's your glide, your glide path. Well, and it follow sounds, that. It sounds like that happens with most other approaches. I don't know why this one they had to tune manually. It does in a lot of cases. In this case, yes, they have to do it manually. Why? Because this airplane, this airport is only equipped with that capability. And the database, I mean, the way that the airplane worked, it just, it needed that information. So, regardless of that, (laughs) there are airplanes out there, primarily actually smaller, newer airplanes that aren't airliners, that have technology like this, where based on the database provided... Whatever airport you're flying into, it assumes whatever the glide path is supposed to be, and basically it can create for you a visual representation on your displays, your computerized displays, which, mind you, a lot of these airplanes are newer than the A320, and it uses that to literally display for you like a box, kind of like a video game. Like, you have to fly through that box for your glide path. Like, this this kind of... Technology does exist. It really does. And it really is capable of doing these kinds of things. There is a way that they can implement this on the A320, and we will talk about that. Okay, good. Finally, they found that once the flight crew members perceived lights on the runway, they decided to contact the controller to ask about the lights. However, their query was delayed because of congestion on the tower frequency, which reduced the time available for the crew members to reconcile their confusion about the lights with the controller's confirmation that the runway was clear. This is the only reason to me that I agree. I mean, I'm not going to say the only reason, I guess, but this is the primary reason to me that I agree with all the other aircraft and everybody else that they should have had more people on duty. Mm -hmm. Because when you're operating on one frequency and everybody in the air and on the ground has to talk to the same person. It's problematic. Yeah. They got blocked up for all this time. Like, it's not necessarily that the air traffic controller was overwhelmed, but there wasn't time for this call to be made for 38 seconds which is a long time it is a long time if there were more than one frequency if somebody was operating the ground frequency if there were two tower frequencies operating during this time which was still really busy even though it wasn't the middle of the day busy this airport's still busy at night then there would have been a better chance that they would have been able to make this call earlier not that it necessarily would have changed anything (laughs) because they were still told that the runway was clear and it was obvious it wasn't because it wasn't a runway Turns out. So that's it for findings. The National Transportation Safety Board determines that the probable cause of this incident was the flight crew's misidentification of Taxiway Charlie as the intended landing runway, which resulted from the crew members' lack of awareness of the parallel runway closure due to their ineffective review of notice to airmen or NOTAM information before the flight and during the approach briefing. Contributing to the incident were, one, the flight crew's failure to tune the instrument landing system frequency for backup lateral guidance, expectation bias, fatigue due to circadian disruption, and length of continued wakefulness, and breakdowns in crew resource management, and two, Air Canada's ineffective presentation of approach procedure and NOTAM information. Da-da-da! 
I think that sums up pretty well that it's a lot more than just one thing. Uh-huh. It always is. For the most part. Yes. Usually. But in this case, like, there was specifically quite a few things that could have led to a very, 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 very serious accident. Now for some recommendations. And there are actually are not very many. There are five. They recommend that to the FAA, that they work with air carriers conducting operations under Title 14 Code Federal Aviation Part 121, specifically because this is what they can control within the United States, to assess all charted visual approaches with a required backup frequency to determine the flight management system auto-tuning capability within an air carrier's fleet. Two, identify those approaches that require an unusual or abnormal manual frequency input. And three, either develop an auto-tune solution or ensure that the manual tune entry has sufficient salience on approach charts. So, they would like the system to be basically as automated as possible, is the yeah. whole idea. Yeah. So that they're not having to manually tune in an ILS frequency and assume that this thing is just going to be able to do that approach. We have the technology. We have the technology. So use it. Yep. They recommend that they establish a group of human factors experts to review existing methods for presenting flight operations information to pilots, including flight releases and general aviation flight planning services, or pre-flight, and aircraft communication addressing reporting systems messages and other in-flight information. Create and publish guidance on best practices to organize, prioritize, and present this information in a manner that optimizes pilot review and retention of relevant information. And work with air carriers and service providers to implement solutions that are aligned with the guidance. So this is obviously an all-encompassing kind of how can they have gotten this information better and retained it and been able to use that information to better infer where they were supposed to be and have a better idea of where they were, where they needed to be. Yeah. So that they weren't disoriented. They recommend establishing a requirement for airplanes landing at primary airports within Class Bravo and Class Charlie airspace to be equipped with a system that alerts pilots when an airplane is not aligned with a runway surface. Because these kinds of systems can be so accurate these days and these airplanes can be so accurate. We have the technology. We have the technology. Basically, it can just tell them, hey, this airplane is not on the center line. This and is not a runway. <laughs> it's a nautical mile from landing and it's not on the center line. They recommend collaborating with aircraft and avionics manufacturers and software developers to develop the technology for a cockpit system that provides an alert to pilots when an airplane is not aligned with the intended runway surface. And once such technology is available, establish a requirement for the technology to be installed on airplanes landing at primary airports within Class Bravo and Class Charlie airspace. This has started to be a thing on a lot of newer airplanes. Make the technology. Yes. We've seen this before, but now this is pretty current. So they are... Still working on these kinds of things, but there are newer airplanes that have this kind of technology where it's like, hey, I noticed that you're like a thousand feet to the right of where you're supposed to be. Maybe don't. Maybe don't. Yeah, that's she what I said. Yes. <laughs> One last recommendation, and then we'll talk about a couple other things. Finally, they recommend modifying airport surface detection equipment, or ASDE systems, and airport surface surveillance capability at those locations where the systems could detect potential taxiway landings and provide alerts to air traffic controllers about potential collision risk. This, I mean, this kind of goes hand in hand with the last couple of recommendations. We have the technology, we're developing the technology, it's not like this can't happen. Yeah. This is a thing, and this can be a thing. It's a thing. So, that that's all of that. Now, let's talk about what Air Canada did after the accident. Which is in Appendix B, if you really want to go look at the report. If you really want to go look at the report. Air Canada developed a means for flight crews to use company tablets to highlight areas and make notes on digital flight releases. 
So technology, technology, get away from the paper, use the technology. Yes, which they all use anyways. Also, Android, can we get with it and get like FAA approved apps? There are a couple. You could use Garmin Pilot if you really wanted to. Air Canada modified its procedures for the Flight Management System, or FMS, bridge approach to runway 28 right at San Francisco. The instruction to tune the instrument landing system frequency was replaced with the instruction to use lateral and vertical navigation guidance to align an airplane with the runway centerline on short final. Also, the FMS automatically sequences the missed approach procedure when the thrust levers are advanced to the takeoff go-around detent. This is something that they could have done a long time ago, they just didn't, where as soon as they activate the go-around push thrust reverser forward, it assumes the airplane's going missed. So then it just changes the whole procedure automatically for the autopilot, for the FMS and everything to just assume now the airplane's going missed so that they don't have to reprogram and everything because the first officer was then preoccupied with that as soon as they did the go around. We didn't really talk about that much, but that was a thing. Air Canada began assessing the use of airplane systems to provide oral and visual alerts if an airplane is not aligned with a runway. This capability is currently installed in company simulators as part of an effort to determine the appropriate system setting to be used during normal operations. Like I said, these systems exist, and it is possible. It just depends on the airplanes. But they're also trying to determine how effective it can be and what the most effective way it is to use it. Air Canada upgraded the Airbus A320 simulator and increased its fidelity so that the simulator graphics could be set to replicate specific airports, including San Francisco. I feel like San Francisco is just a problematic airport. Kind of. I mean, it is such a unique airport in the way that it is designed and handled. Like, I can't imagine being excited to fly to San Francisco. I don't know. It's pretty exciting as a pilot, actually, because it's really cool. It is really tricky, and it requires a lot of attention if you're not flying an instrument. And even if you are flying an instrument approach. Air Canada implemented familiarization training for operations to and from San Francisco for all pilots during recurrent training. If you're going to fly to San Francisco, you should probably know how to do it, because this is an odd airport, and there are odd situations. This got so much media attention, too, that I feel like Air Canada had to do something. Yeah. So that's fair. They're like, we screwed up. Yep. We're going to fix it. Yep. Air Canada implemented a learning management system module for all airports on the FAA's special pilot-in-command qualification airport list, including San Francisco. Air Canada restricted entry pilots and unique airports within Air Canada's system. Air Canada reiterated the requirement to back up all approaches with electronic means when available. The ILS. If it's an option, use use it. Use it. It only makes sense. It's kind of an older system, but it's proven to work so incredibly well. Mm-hmm. Just use it. Also, maybe make sure like the approach thing has it like a you know a bullet pointed point. out, not buried in a paragraph. Seriously, there we have a picture of the instructions from yep. that approach yep. on the on the website. It's buried. It is buried. Buried. It is. Here's one that you will appreciate. Maybe both of you will. Air Canada explained the meaning of quote as soon as possible end quote. Thank you. <laughs> That is helpful. (laughs) In revision 33 of the Flight Operations Manual, which is issued in May of 2018, for reporting aircraft accidents, incidents, emergencies, and other safety events. It doesn't specify how they clarified that, but they explained what they mean by as soon as possible. So I assume they gave some kind of like... Instruction? Well, that or like deadline. It's got to be within two hours of end of flight, something like that. And finally, Air Canada amended the arrival and approach briefing procedure in revision 33 of the flight operation manual to ensure that the approach and runway lighting and visual aids expected for a runway are briefed. Talk about what you're expected to see. 
that is an important thing. I mean, I think just briefing what you expect to see because that's how you keep yourself from being in a situation like this. Another thing they didn't really talk about in any of this is that they wanted some of their airplanes had heads up displays and heads up displays can help you a lot with all of this information because then it's right in front of you and you're not having to look down at any point in time. They literally specified that the first officer had a lot of heads down time. Which yes. A heads up display. Right. What they suggested was that both sides, they have dual heads up displays, which means that both pilots would have a heads up display option. When did heads up displays become prominent in commercial aviation? I wouldn't even know necessarily that to say whether they are or are not prominent now, but more so than they used to be. Because I know the Max has them. Yes. Heads up displays have been around for a long time, actually. I mean, they started basically with like NASA and their and fighter, you know, military fighter jets and stuff like that back in. We're talking about like the 50s and 60s. They started developing heads up displays. In airliners, it really became true technology they could use starting in the 80s, per se. And then they became really usable pieces of equipment that most airlines wanted. However, they are extremely pricey add-ons for airplanes, starting in about probably the 90s. So a lot more recently, airlines have modified a lot of their airplanes to have them. But it is a very, very expensive piece of equipment to add. These days, it's getting a little better, but it was for a very long time, you know, we're talking millions of dollars to add on to airplanes, and that, yeah. is, that is expensive. So it is definitely a really pertinent thing, and I think heads-up displays definitely keep your situational awareness a lot more in focus when you're in high-stress and high-workload situations like this. Yeah. So I think that was something else worth bringing up, too. I don't know that it necessarily would have saved them in this situation, but if they had a combination of things in coordination with having a heads-up display especially both of them, then better chance they would have caught this a lot sooner. Thankfully, this didn't end in disaster, but... By sheer dumb luck. Pretty much. It was that close. It was that close. Any one extra thing went wrong, any one extra second was spent doing anything else, and this might not have been the same story. Yes. So, this was quite the story, quite the stress load, but also, it kind of proves still that there are a lot of safety things in place that keep actual accidents from happening. Yes. Crew resource management, I'm not going to say was entirely out the window because they didn't disagree with one another while workload was too high for both of them. When the time came for them to have to react, they did. They did. And they reacted together. And they reacted the way they were supposed to, and they didn't overstress it. They didn't. It didn't put them into a situation that was worse. They just got out of it. Because crew resource management did work. So even when it's not perfect, it works. Ha ha. That was Air Canada Flight 759. Yes. I'm proud of you. Got it. I do have a listener question. Okay. That actually goes really well with today's episode. This question came from Lieutenant Spock of the USS Enterprise. Senior Spock. Senior Spock. Hi again. Thanks for answering my question. You guys are awesome. I have another question, though, and I'll try to keep this one shorter. You didn't. (laughs) (laughs) Decisively. That's okay. I'm a a flight instructor and military pilot. 
I'm no aviation safety expert, but there's something I think you guys should explore a little bit more on your show. In a few episodes, I've heard you guys talk about automation and autopilot usage, specifically when use of the autopilot could have likely averted crashes if the pilots had it engaged or simply had it had not disengaged the autopilot too early. You're probably right in some of those cases, but there's a lot more to the story. While the automation is a very powerful tool in decreasing pilot workload, the risks of over-reliance on automation are severe. Also agree. Yes. There's an excellent video called Children of the Magenta, 1997 Delta training product, describing the attenuation of basic pilot skills as commercial pilots increasingly delegate every phase of flight to automation and relegate themselves to a few minutes of hand flying every other landing. As a consequence, the majority of accidents from 2001 to 2016 were the result of loss of control in flight or controlled flight into terrain. Unrecognized skulls or flight envelope departure can quickly become unrecoverable if basic air work is lacking. Failure to navigate the aircraft isn't solved by automating or even following flight directors if the program flight path is not understood by the pilot flying or the pilot monitoring and risks mid-air collisions or energy mismanagement. See Asiana Flight 214, Episode 33. What do you know? There hey, you go. Hey, thank you for looking that up for us. <laughs> Airlines that fail to foster a hand-flying culture have pilots who are unable to manage the workload of safe operation or enforce productive CRM. A 2013 report reviewed automation philosophy at different airlines, finding worrying trends about company policies. Many pilots reported that they would not feel comfortable hand-flying an entire instrument approach or had not done so in the past month. Guess I failed to keep it short, <laughs> but I thought it was really important to highlight that automation isn't the solution when the aircraft's flight path is in doubt. Autopilot is a garbage-in, garbage-out system, and over-reliance on automation is dangerous in the long run. Pilots must take opportunities to maintain their skills and tempt fate when they let them atrophy. Again, love listening to your show. Okay, a few things, because I know you have a lot to say about it. Yes, I do. Before you get into your entire lecture, first of all, we did talk about this with the Air France flight we covered yes, we with Brendan a long time ago with the introduction of a lot of automation during the when they crashed into the trees they were showing off the aircraft what is it called yeah they were the high angle yeah the angle of attack speed. no not that what were they flying at an air show yeah i couldn't think of that yes one. they oh. were at an air show yes what so are you talking about we to be perfectly honest when we comment about things like they weren't using the autopilot or they mm -hmm. should have been using the autopilot here's why and again nick will probably get into more of this yes but a few weeks ago, I believe, we covered a pilot that wanted to hand fly everything. And the whole point, as you said, of using autopilot is to take less stress off the aircraft. Right. Now, so you minimize the workload. Yeah. So you ha you are also a pilot and a training pilot, and a military pilot. You've been behind an aircraft and have hand flown it before. You understand how hard it is to even control those tiny planes. Imagine doing it to a giant plane Moving very for fast. multiple hours at a time. So we're not saying that like you should fully rely on automation. If that was the case, there wouldn't be a pilot. <laughs> no, but it's a tool. Yes, and you yes. should use all the tools at your disposal as long as you understand how to use them and right. when to use them. That's the big thing. So, yes. I'll go into a little spiel now. I agree. <laughs> with, I, I do agree with you, actually. I, I agree with you that we shouldn't over rely. That's why this whole thing is about a balance. That's part of crew resource management as well as human factors. We've been trying to find that balance between we need that human element. It has to be there. It's just going to be safer that way, especially when they are trained to do all facets of the flying that they do. 
And I agree with you that it is important to keep up that practice, that regular practice on these kinds of things. And that's why, like, there are whole departments for this at most airlines where their entire job is to make sure that each pilot has done X amount of landings, approaches, hand flying, hand flying of any part of the procedure during a certain period of time. So to, to put it kind of from my perspective as being mostly a passenger, as in always a passenger, just mm-hmm. backseat flying, mm-hmm. I want my crew to always be able to f- hand fly any phase of flight. In I want- case... It's necessary. I want them Agreed. to. I want them to be able to hand fly the entire flight. I don't want them to have to. Right. Right. But they should have to every so often, in order to be able to do it. Yeah. Well, and when you start out flying, when you get your initial hours, at least in the United States, you yep. do almost all hand, hand flying. Period. Right. Like Brendan, all hand flying. <laughs> right. And you do need to keep up that skill. But here's where the automation piece comes in. And here's this is a deeper conversation. This can get really philosophical, but it's not just about the automation. And yes, it is a tool. But how can you make that automation smarter so that you have to do less to that tool to make it help you? So in other words, like they were talking about in this accident we were covering today, it should be able to auto tune the ILS. That way, that's one less piece of this tool that the human element had to input. And one more piece of the tool that the human element, the human factor, the human could have used to get themselves out of the situation. The automation would have been important to help them out of the situation, but it would have been even more important if that automation had been able to do it itself. And it didn't in this case. It required the first officer to take his attention away and program the automation. That's where, yes, over-reliance on automation was the issue, But the automation wasn't smart enough to be useful as a tool. So I agree. I agree. And I think that there's multiple facets to this. And I think that every time one of these situations like what we covered with Air Canada Flight 759 benefits. I mean, unfortunately, you know, and they actually said this in the report, but it was too reactionary rather than preventative, preventative, cautionary. So... That's one of those things where it's like, how how can we get to the point where we are being cautionary and preventative? But that's the human factors training, and that's that part of it. It's like we have to plan for those eventual possible incidents, accidents, anything like that, in order to prevent them. But we can't think of anything. We just can't because that's a human factor. And that's the unfortunate part. When we covered Crosshair, I think it was 498. 492, something like that. 498, 498. Mm-hmm. That was the one with the the pilot that he was hand-flying takeoff, yep. which normally is okay, but generally... But then he flew in that, IMC. Yeah, and usually they use autopilot, autopilot to mm-hmm. just help with that extra stress. Workload. Right. Because when you take off, there's a billion things that they that you have to do after you take off, right? Mm-hmm. Checklists upon checklists, making sure you're following the the path to get out of the airport airspace, right. all that. But the critical thing that happened in that case is that they had to reset the autopilot. They had to retune the, the FMS to be the path in the opposite direction and that didn't happen fast enough for the pilot to actually be able to use it and he didn't use it anyways because he didn't know how. Right. So then he went the opposite direction, the direction he intended to go. And then it all just fell uh, apart yeah. from there. Yeah, so it was all just a mess from there. There's there's both sides to the story. We 
as we constantly keep saying, we don't disagree with you. But to be fair, whenever we bring it up, every time we cover it, it's in the report as a factor. Right. We are not expressing our opinions as this should happen. Right. We're saying this is what the report says and the facts in the report, they should have followed yep. whatever that was. I think there's definitely has to be a balance. And one opinion that I do have is that I do not think that Airbus's A350 with a single pilot is a good idea. No, no it's a terrible idea. It's a horrible idea. Because then you have no such thing as crew resource management. There's no checks and balances. Correct. So... Unless you're going to completely remove the pilot from the airplane, which isn't a great idea either. I would not get on an airplane that doesn't have a pilot. Right. So it's a balance. It's a balance. And I think every time we talk about one of these accidents, I think it's it's we're talking about that balance. And that's just how it is. It's like, how could this have been helped with technology? How could this have been helped with the piloting ability? So, you know, every episode just adds to that balance. And that's how the industry kind of works, too, is every every accident every incident is a balance i appreciate the the thought i definitely really like it it's it's definitely more of a philosophical kind of thing that we could get deep into but that's as far as i'm going to go with it for now yeah um, uh we made it just as much of a, a not short answer as it was as to a not short question <laughs> and that's okay but i really appreciate it and i appreciate you listening and writing in and I, I like your thoughts i like the way you think also thank you for listening and being a pilot and yes. enjoying our podcast yes really appreciate it <laughs> Keep sending your thoughts. It's good. I stuff. wonder how many pilots actually listen to this. More than you probably think. All right. Well, thank you for listening on that note. Thanks to our patrons. Y'all are awesome. You guys are great. Mm -hmm. And you get extra content, by the way, like hundreds of hours of extra content. We're I think go. there's more content on Patreon than there is. There is. We're more than one for one. Yeah. So, so feel free to just like check it out. Chickity check it out. Also, remember to submit stories for pranks for april we will combine march and april depending on how that ends up playing out and if you want ducks or if you want to sign up for the newsletter all of that stuff is on the website including merch check out the merch too. yep thanks okay have a good rest of your week and a safe and healthy week and we will catch you all next week keep your speed up Please like and follow us on Facebook and Instagram at Hardlandings Podcast and on Twitter at Hardlandings Pod. Subscribe and leave a five-star review on the platform you are using to listen. If you would like to see photos and sources for this episode, please visit us at hardlandingspodcast.com, where you can also leave us feedback and ask questions. This episode was researched and written by Nick and Christy. Our theme song was written by Miranda and performed by all three of us plus Leo. And our logo is by Naomi from Not a Monster, Not a Boogeyman. Thanks for listening. Catch you next time.